What does it mean to have a calling? Many people around us would say that our calling is doing something that we are uniquely able to do. This is when somebody who excels at a task while the rest of us just kind of do it with mediocrity. Someone would say that's their calling is to do that. But there's also the one who joyfully does what no one else wants to do. We laugh and say, that's not a job, that's a calling. And still yet, there is the one who does something with so much passion, with so much enthusiasm, that one looks at them and says, they are clearly called to do that. It has been said that a calling is the ability, desire, and opportunity to do something. So what would you say your calling is? Would you say that you were called to suffer? Would you say that God has given you the desire, ability, and opportunity to suffer as a Christian? Would you say you are called to suffer? In our time tonight, we will be looking at a Christian's calling, a call to suffer as Christ suffered for us. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we will be looking at the verses 18 through 25. As you're turning there, I want to briefly remind us of where we are at in 1 Peter. Through this series, we've seen that this letter is written to suffering Christians being persecuted for their faith. And although there has been a lot said up until where we are at tonight, I want to draw our attention to the fact that Peter exhorts his readers to be submissive to authorities. And building off of that, Peter goes on to tell his readers how a Christian should respond to unjust authorities. And this is where we find ourselves tonight. So 1 Peter 2, starting in chapter 18, reads this way. Sorry, chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The verses we are looking at tonight start off with a cultural disconnect for us Americans who live in the 21st century. However, I want us to understand that from the beginning, Peter is describing how Christians should respond to authorities and unjust suffering, not just servants and slaves or slaves. So everything we are about to read and have read specifically applies to each of us. But Peter starts off by addressing servants, or maybe a more helpful definition, house slaves. And because of our cultural disconnect, we need to understand Peter is addressing a prevalent topic the readers would have been having to deal with in their day-to-day life. Even though this is somewhat foreign to us, it would have not been at all to his readers. From the text, we can say that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter needed to address this for his readers. And for some added clarity, we also need to understand that the word that is translated here as servants in the Greek is referring to a household servant or a household slave, many of whom would have been well-educated and even have responsible positions in their household. For us, this would be similar, not perfectly, but similar to a work-employee-boss relationship. It is also a term that is more familial than other words commonly translated as slave or servant. This word is depicting one who is of the house, not a child from the house. And to these people, these servants or slaves, Peter exhorts them to Be subject to your masters with all respect. In the previous verses, Peter has told his readers to respect and to submit to authority. 1 Peter 2, 13 13 through 14 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And in verse 17, he exhorts them to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So building off of this, Peter exhorts slaves to submit to or be subject to their masters with all respect. Not some respect, not most respect, all respect. Out of our reverence for God, we should have the utmost respect for the authorities he has placed over us. Is that the way we see the authorities God has placed over us? Is this the way I see it? Could you say that you have all respect for your boss? And taking that a step further, if you did say that, would your coworkers agree with you? Is this how we are submitting to our governing authorities with all respect? And to those of us that are still under our parents' roof, do you submit to your parents with all respect? Would your brother or sister agree with you about that? 
God has placed authorities over us, and we are to treat them with all respect. But when we see the respect Peter is exhorting these servants to have, and through application, the respect we are to have for our authorities, it begs a question. What about unjust authorities? What about those who use their authority for evil? They use it to oppress, not to cultivate love and goodness. They use it for selfish gain and not for the good of those in their charge. What about them? Surely we get a pass with them. We only have to respect and submit to the authorities that honor God with that authority, right? Well, let's keep reading. Back in verse 18, servants be subject with your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. What are the thoughts that go through your head when you read that? Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Is it something like, that's not fair? I mean, I get submit and respect the good, but also to the unjust. Why? Why do I have to submit and respect them while they sin and even sin against me? Before we move on from here, I want to encourage our thinking a little bit. It is right and we are commanded to hate what is evil. And that would include evil and abusive authorities. We should rightly hate sin. My sin, your sin, everyone's sin. It should grieve us. But many times our hatred of evil is tainted with selfishness. It is tainted with our own sin. We do not always hate sin because sin is against a holy, holy, holy God. We can hate sin because it makes our life harder. We can hate sin because it hurts our pride or rubs up against our sin. May we remember that sin will always be more egregious to God than it is to you and I. And that includes people abusing their God-given authority. So do we, we do not endure this evil because it is, it is not a big deal to God. We endure it for another reason. We read on in verse 19, for this, the this being honoring and submitting to your masters that are treating you unjustly. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It is a gracious thing it means it's a good thing. It could be said it is to our credit. It looks like a picture of a father delighting in the actions of his son and his esteem towards his son growing by his son's actions. A thing that is admirable, that pleases God. But Peter also adds something else. He adds when mindful of God. 
he doesn't just say this is a gracious thing. He gives a condition by saying when. Like my wife loves it that I remember our anniversary. When I get the date right. And like kids, your parents love it that you clean your rooms. When you don't just throw everything under the bed or in the closet. Not that I've ever done that, but that's beside the point. So what does it mean to be mindful of God? Since this is a condition. It means to look past the man sitting in front of you to the one who put him there. It means to look at the one who established authority and trust him. It means to say, my times are in your hand, as we read the psalmist David say this morning. It means to trust God's sovereignty that you are where you are today with the master that you have or the boss that you have, or the spouse that you have, or the president that we all have, not because God fell asleep, but because he appointed it. Isn't this what Jesus did with Pilate? Keep your finger here in 1 Peter, but turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. We are not going to be here long, but I want us to look at it, and I want you to be able to read it with your own eyes. Chap- John chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again. And said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all. Unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Excuse me. This is what being mindful of God looks like while suffering. Jesus, beaten, bruised, with blood running down his head from the crown of thorns, looks at Pilate and says, you would have no authority over me at all 
unless it had been given you from above. Jesus is looking past the man to the God who put that man there. This is what Peter is describing in our text, isn't it? Enduring unjust suffering and being mindful of God. There's no doubt Jesus pleased his father by his response. Now let us turn back to 1 Peter. Peter wants us to see more though. He wants us to see that God is not pleased by sin. He goes on in verse 20, For what credit is it if when you sinned and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Peter clarifies here that there is a difference between unjust suffering and consequences. There is a difference between one who sins and suffers because of that sin and one who does not sin but does good and suffers for it. And after that distinction, he says again, this is a gracious thing. And he adds, in the sight of God. God is pleased and credits his children by how they respond to other people's sin or abusive authorities. But that does not mean if we do this, we will receive health or wealth or that somehow God owes us. Jesus did this and died on a cross. But even the fact that we are able to respond to unjust suffering this way is the grace of God. It is the evidence of the grace of God in our lives. So we see that it is a gracious thing. But Peter doesn't stop. He continues in verse 21. For to this, and that this is doing good and suffering for it, that we see back in verse 20. For to this you have been called. The same God who called us to his eternal glory that we see in chapter 5, verse 10 in 1 Peter. The same God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light that we saw back in chapter 2, verse 9, calls us to something else. These words have been ringing in my ears ever since Blake asked me to teach tonight. To this you have been called. He doesn't say you were called to be healthy. He doesn't say you were called to be wealthy. He doesn't say you were called to be treated rightly. No, he says, God says in his word, you are called to do good and suffer for it. Why? Peter continues, because... Christ also suffered for you. I have heard the gospel presented like Jesus suffered for you so you don't have to suffer. And to a certain extent, that is true. Those who are born again, those who, are Christ, who Christ suffered for, will not suffer under the wrath of God in hell. So in that way, he did suffer so we won't. But on the other hand, Scripture is clear. On this earth, 
we will suffer like our Redeemer following his example. And that is how Peter continues. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Christian, before we are driven to despair, let us remember what Christ has done for us. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember the beatings. Remember the mocking. Remember that Peter himself turned his back on him and denied him. Remember the cross that he couldn't even carry and then that he hung on that cross. Christian, he did that for you. And we are called to look at that cross and everything leading up to it and follow in our Savior's example with how we respond to suffering. It has rightly been said that in the gospel, we see the only place in history where an innocent man dies. Now that sounds like suffering. Unjust suffering. And that is our example. What a savior. So how did Christ respond to this? Peter continues in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Could we say that about ourselves? In the midst of this type of suffering, Jackson committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When Jackson was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. I can't say that. Can you? May we all grow in imitating our Savior. Before we move on from here, though, I want us to see something. In this list, there are four things Jesus didn't do, but one thing he did do. He trusted his Father. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Learning from Christ's example, this is how we do not revile in return. This is how we do not threaten. We should trust the perfect judge, the all-knowing, always present, perfectly righteous judge. And when we see that, <coughs> excuse me, when we see that, our mouths should shut. Remembering our Savior and trusting our God who will one day judge the living and the dead. But Peter doesn't stop yet. He doesn't stop with Jesus as our example because we need more than an example. 
many secular people would agree that he is a good example. Most religions that I know of say he is a good example. We were past needing a good example only because when we read Ephesians 2. So before we know Christ as our example, we have to know him as our Savior. So Peter goes on in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We needed a sin bearer. If we were going to be reconciled to God and have peace with him, we needed to be made clean. So Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, took our sin in his body on the cross, physically dying and bearing the wrath of God so that you and I could be made clean. Jesus is our perfect example, but that's not all he is. He stood in our place bearing the wrath of God, but he doesn't stop there. There's another reason he came. We read, starting back at verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That, or for the purpose of, or making us able to die to sin and live to righteousness. Not only is he our example, not only is he our sin bearer, but through his life and death, we are able by the power of the Holy Spirit to die to sin and live to righteousness. What does that mean? This means you have the ability by the grace of God to follow Christ's example. This means you can be, by the grace of God, you can suffer well. This means that through him, you can have the self-control not to revile in return, but trust him who judges justly. Beloved, by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were strain like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Hallelujah, what a savior. Friend, do you know this savior? If you don't look to Christ, repent and believe. And to us who do know him, tonight as we remember our Savior by partaking of the Lord's Supper, let us remember the cross. Let us remember our example. Let us remember our suffering servant who did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to his father. Let us remember the one who bore our sins on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we come to you through a righteousness that is not our own. We come to you through the blood of our Savior and we ask that you would cause us to live this way. That you would strengthen us to suffer well 
looking to our Savior, our example. God, we trust you with our lives. And when we don't help our unbelief, God, we are grateful for the grace that you have given us, that even though we see the commands in this text that we fall short of, God, your grace is more. So God, we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.